The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. So welcome everybody to the podcast today. We are really excited to have Dr. Jessie Gold with us. Many of you, I'm sure, know of her, have seen her. I'm just going to list a couple of the, few of the places. Her writings have appeared in Time and Newsweek and Forbes. She's appeared in NPR, MSNBC, PBS NewsHour, CBS News. I mean, I think we could just say pretty much all of them, not to mention social media, Twitter, something that I do. She's in the tens of thousands of followers, really having an impact and somebody that has, in terms of the traditional pedigree, UPenn and Yale and Stanford. So people wouldn't be surprised that you'd be destined to be doing really cool things. And uh, so it's really quite an honor to have some time with you. So welcome. Thanks for having me. So we had a chance to talk a little bit before, and I was hoping that we'd spend just a little time talking about your experience of the pandemic, but then try to get to how that relates to who you are, you know, as a person and as a, and as a clinician and, and then what you're doing in the world. And so maybe just to begin, and, you know, uh, I'm going to have us fast forward a little bit and just uh, stipulate that, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we're in healthcare, you're a doc, you're an educator. So um, as, as most of the, uh, pretty much everybody on the podcast has, has described how, how difficult that can be. How did you, now you're a psychiatrist, right? And very self-aware. You had, a, you had something to say about, uh, you weren't actually aware that uh, it was getting to you and then you became aware. So, so tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think as a psychiatrist, we have this very different view of what frontline work is, right? I mean, I think, you know, we go to medical school, we see our friends and family who are often a lot of times doctors because that's who we're exposed to. It doesn't always happen in family members, but I have a lot of family in medicine. And so those are the people that we see on the front lines. They're actively doing medicine on the front lines in COVID, you know, like 
seeing people exposed to the virus. And what I'm doing is being in my house behind a screen, seeing patients. And so I felt safe, you know, I mean, in a very different way, felt like I was privileged to be, you know, safe from COVID, safe from, you know, catching the virus in that way. And what I do in my job is see healthcare workers and college students, but healthcare workers. And so I'm seeing staff, faculty, healthcare workers day after day tell me stories about what they do on the front lines. And I had no idea it was affecting me because I think as psychiatrists and often all really mental health professionals, we have this like, our job is to listen. Our job is to do this and be there for people. And we have this ability to sort of like put up a front emotional stress and strain is so different than physical stress and strain. And, you know, I think medical school makes you think like that. Like, you know, I'm tired when I work a lot of hours. I'm tired when I'm on call. I'm not somehow tired because of emotions. Mm. And so I think when I was doing that day after day after day, I was just like falling asleep after work. And for hours, like I couldn't keep my eyes open. And I would just do my day and do patients back to back telehealth, which I'd never done before either, which is a different kind of stress and strain. And I was like, why am I so tired? Like, I just don't understand why I'm so tired. Something must be physically wrong with me because it makes no sense that I have anything else wrong with me. I'm physically ill. And so I went to my primary care doctor and was like, fix me because I obviously am ill because this makes no other sense. And my primary care doctor actively screened me for depression and over and over was like, are you sure you're not sad? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, I'm very sure because I'm a person who would tell you if I was sad, have been sad before, do not feel sad, do not feel anxious, do not feel agitated, would tell you if some other mood was somehow replacing depression, would not screen positive on most things on a depression screen. And I'm not just lying to you. And I, and I would tell you if I was. And, um, you know, she's like, okay. And I was like, I think it's something else. Please do labs or something. And so she agreed to do labs. You know, my B12 was low and like low enough that I was allowed to get injections. And so for me, that was like, look, I have something and I can say it's a physical thing. And like, I nailed it. Like, wow. I'm right. It's physical. There's nothing else wrong with me. The end. I'm solved. Whatever. Right. And everyone, when, everyone, when they talk about B12 is always like, you know, it's the B, B12 shots are awesome and people feel so good after them. So I got them for a couple of weeks and still felt oh, bad. Okay. And I was like, something else is wrong. And I was talking to my therapist and I was like, I got these shots. I feel a little better physically. Like I can stay up a little more. I don't feel like this like dire need to sleep immediately, but I still don't feel okay. And she's like, Uh huh. And I was like, so my primary care doctor thinks I'm depressed. Do you think I'm depressed? Am I, (laughs) am I missing something? And she's like, no, like, I don't think you're depressed. Like, I I get where you're coming from. But she's like, you are a frontline worker seeing frontline workers during a pandemic. Like, what else could that be? And I paused and I was like, oh, I'm burnt out. Huh? And she goes, uh-huh. And I just started laughing. Wow. And she's like, why are you laughing? And I was like, that's really bad. 
I just lecture about burnout all the time. Okay. So now we just, we have to pause for just a second on that because we're talking to externally well-trained, talented psychiatrist who gives lectures, who talks, who teaches on burnout. And, and I want to go back to this because I was going to say why, right? But I think you started saying something about why is it that we, and I guess we might say in, in medicine or in healthcare, we could broaden it, but for now, let's just say, you know, you were talking about the medical culture and you were saying something, even for a psychiatrist coming up in the medical culture, what happens? that works against our capacity to realize what's happening to us emotionally. Yeah. I mean, it's like somehow they tell us it's not real, even though we know it's real. And it's like what really counts is physical illness. And that is, and you still have this physical illness bar and it's still really high, right? Like, you know, I can't count the number of times that doctors or even, you know, us in medical school, us in training, like you have to be so sick to miss. I've heard stories of people like actively miscarrying and missing work like after or, you know, like carrying an IV pole while they're actively throwing up and going to work. Like those are the bars at which we're allowed to miss work. So emotions are what like way down if that's when you're allowed to miss work. Right. So I think that if we're if in our back of our mind, we're like, well, I wasn't allowed miss work for this like what is an emotion so we have that actively there and at the same time have our training and the things that we're telling patients and we're like these are very conflicting statements and which one's winning out and i think in the moment like the thing that we put with ourselves is the medical one for some reason and we view ourselves within the medical model and we want to keep going because we want to keep helping people yeah. and the way to keep helping people is to view ourselves like we're not humans you know i think and if we view ourselves like our emotions matter or yeah. like, you know, we view ourselves with a lower bar of need, then we have to stop. And if we have to stop, then we can't help as many people right. or we can't do our job. And those are, like you said, those are the stories that get told over and over. And think about how many, you're talking about medicine and medical training, but also nursing and all the folks that are working in healthcare. These are the stories that get told and the way you describe it. It's almost like we just absorb it in the air and you can't escape it. And I'm just thinking now, what if you hadn't had a doctor, you know, that was screening you, you know, and, and even was willing to suggest, which is not always easy these days, we're getting better at it. You know, do you, do you think there's anything going on? Are you sad? And then what if you didn't have a therapist that had, you know, thank goodness you had those, those two things. And as we think about how we build systems and how we, you know, train our, our medical colleagues, it reminds us about what's important. So then, you know, you have this moment with your therapist and now you're, you're like, okay, I'm burned out. Then what did you do and how did, how did it go? Yeah. I mean, once I got over the fact that I was embarrassed because, you know, I think it took a little bit of like humility to say like somebody who talks about this all the time can still miss it in themselves. And it's really embarrassing, you know, because I think on the surface level, like, yes, we do recommend these things to people and talk about it. And we feel like we should be practicing what we preach or whatever, but we still don't. And that's really bad. And I think that as a person who really does try to at least be an authentic human, like I did feel really horrible that I was so far down and had no idea. Yeah. Um, and so that took me a little bit to be like, oh, that's, oh, that's really not okay. And so once I got over that a bit, it was like, how do I recalibrate? And I was pretty far down the path of, 
I need to actually take a break and I need to figure out like it can't be tomorrow because I have patients, so I can't like mm-hmm. call in sick. Yep. But, um, you know, when is an appropriate time that I can get coverage and when is an appropriate time that I can take some days off and, and when is a time that I can really like reset myself and then get back on track to like finding what coping skills work for me and finding like a better way to, you know, not get that far down the next time because mm-hmm. I definitely was a little bit too far to be like, okay, now let's now get to prevention. Like I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I was. I was in the, now I have to incorporate like the stop the bleed stage. And so I, I had to get away from work to be able to reset as opposed to just saying like, okay, what helps me feel better? Like I'm going to go journal, like journaling wouldn't have helped then. Right. I think you said something like you had to, you had to work on uh, getting better at saying no. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, I think that's always been bad for me. It's also traditionally bad for women. But I think, you know, one of the things that is really hard for me and has been even harder over the pandemic has been, you know, people want help and need help. And when you're a person who really understands mental health and understands mental health in this population that people wanted to talk about and never used to want to talk about, I wanted to do as much as I could to be out there and doing stuff. And so I started saying yes a lot Mm -hmm. because I just wanted to be useful. And then I would go look at my schedule and realize I was like, not just doing patients, but doing all of this stuff as much as I could, like media and social media and writing and, you know, talks and whatever. And, and a lot of it was coming from people I really cared about or things I would be really excited to be doing because they were talks or media that I would have been thankful to be asked to have been doing before. But I had Mm -hmm. to learn to be like, even though I might be excited about that, or that's a good opportunity, or it could help people like, I still have to factor myself into this situation or I'm not hurting a friend or a friend of a friend to say like, listen, like Mm -hmm. this isn't okay for me right now. I could do this in a couple of weeks. Is that okay with you? Mm -hmm. And just say like, this is what I have to do for me. And I've, I definitely had to do that a lot more. And it's hard for me to do that because I feel like I'm letting people down or Mm -hmm. I'm letting a group of people down because I, you know, I'm like trying to advocate for a population mm-hmm. that needs me in my, in my view. Um, yeah. And so I, it definitely takes a different approach and it has been hard for me to do and I'm still working on it yeah. and I still mess up sometimes, but yeah. Well, I'm sure. And actually, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, kind of going back to what you started with, what gets taught, what, what are the stories that get told? We don't do a lot of teaching in, I mean, you could say in how to say no, that might sound a little impolitic. I mean, it's, it's really around boundaries and how do you protect yourself because you know if i bet if we could wave a wand and all of a sudden uplift a whole cohort of people to be better at doing that i think we'd want to do that because it, it would help them the other thing going back to this moment with your therapist and and i totally got it when you said here we are you know talking about this stuff experts as psychiatrists and you're working on wellness and then it takes another person to reflect back to you that you're burned out and how weird that moment is but it reminded me that actually that's so human, right? Like you, you can be the best, right? Absolutely. The best person, best therapist, best wellness person, but you're still a person. And it really emphasizes to me the degree to which we need other people. We need, we need each other to kind of manage things. So I think it's really elegant the way that came out. I'd love to spend more time on this, but I actually really want to get to the, I mean, this is already inspiring because you as a doc talking in this way, I think is, is having an effect. 
But I really, you know, what really was inspiring to me talking with you is how you've, how, and I'm trying to think about how to get to this, how you have grown. Can you say a little bit about how you deal with you know, this kind of style of yours, right? Because I think you said you're, you're somebody that's generally open. You're open about talking about your therapy. You're in the moment. Maybe you'd even said something about there was a time earlier in the medical system where you got negative feedback about that, but then you've turned it around. How, where do you want to start with that? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that a bit. You know, I think, you know, similarly to this emotion side of medicine where they try to teach you not to have that and not think about that, I think they also try to, it's kind of in parallel, teach you to be a certain way and act a certain way. And I think that that is where I fit in and my emotional side is very similar to my authenticity. And I think when I was in medical school, the things that were really hard for me, the things that I witnessed, the things that I didn't like in terms of like bullying or hierarchy, I believe very much in knowledge hierarchy. I don't believe in using hierarchy to hurt people. And I think that when I was in med school, there were things that I saw or things that I felt or things that I experienced I didn't like. And I didn't know what to say or I didn't know how to act because this is like not what we do. And I think you know, there were times where I would get feedback in third year where it was like very much a personality flight. And I was like, I don't think that this makes any sense that you're allowed to write this. Like, this has nothing to do with my work ethic. It has nothing to do with my ability to be a doctor. This this just means you don't like me. You know? so you were a med student and getting actual evaluations and, and it was feedback about your personality. Yeah, absolutely. Like things like, you know, I mean, one time I think it was even like I was too cordial to nursing. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, how do you even say that I'm nice to nurses and that's negative feedback? Like, I, I just was like, I don't know how you even write this down. Do you know what it meant for you to sit there and write that? It just was weird. Or like, I asked too many questions or like, it was just bizarre. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it had nothing to do with how good I was at actual patient care or how hardworking I was or anything like that. And I took a lot of it to heart as a med student. Like I would cry and I would be like, I don't know if I need to change this to get through this, or I don't know if I belong here. And I don't want, I don't know if I want to be doing this. And I I thought a lot of times about whether I did. And by the time, you know, I actually got through it and went into psychiatry because it was the place that didn't make me feel like that the most, (laughs) Um, you know, I think it's like, I was able to go like, how do I keep going? And why do I fit in this better than other things? And it was more like, oh, okay, like my story matters. Other people's stories matter. This is the central part of this. And this is where people are like happy for you to be who you are and what you want to be. And so I think over time, I've learned that like that part of me is what makes me unique and better at my job and what makes me better at advocating for change in the profession. And because they weren't able to like beat it out of me, I'm able to say like, oh, hey, like that's the part that's broken. You know, and I and I want to. That's where I want to get to is what you've done with it, and because it's such an inspiring story, really, and you're still well into writing it. But let's try just to slow this part down a little bit because trying to try to break it down and understand it. So, because I mean, you know, you're talking about medical school, medical training, but all healthcare training. You know, people don't go into it because they've got nothing else to do or they're just looking for a job. There's a passion. People are driven by their heart and their soul to do this work, to do doctoring, nursing, social work. So there is an intense pressure to, or let's call it pressure to want to fit in, 
to want to feel like you belong because you know you bring your heart to it and you're speaking to it but i'm sure many people have felt it right so what is it about why does that happen is it is it dehumanizing is there part of that our culture and healthcare that tries to take part of people's humanity out is it in addition or separately that your authenticity which now we speak a lot about wanting authenticity thankfully um is it particularly about you know people who speak up or are authentic what is your thought because you said earlier about you come from a family with a medical background so i'm sure you've thought about medicine what do you think is going on yeah i mean i think in a lot of ways there is always this one view of what it means to be in healthcare and what it means to be good at it and i think that you know it's like this awe-inspiring person who does these certain things and that makes you a professional and I am here and I act this way and that's what patients like and I have to be this certain person and this certain way and that's how patients like and respect me and value what I have to say and I think that like that isn't true but we have over time grown to believe that and so the people who are above us and training us have like you know, evolve to believe that. And so when they teach, it's like this hidden curriculum that they believe is the personality of medicine to, you know, teach to the lower generation of people. And for a long time, medicine obviously was very white and very male. Mm -hmm. And so that also has to do with it, I think, because when you don't have diversity of thought and experience, that also has to do with what kind of person you're creating, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're isn't as many people challenging what you're putting out there. And I think that's changing over time too. And as that changes, the, the kind of things we're teaching are changing, but that has become, I mean, that's hard because people still have to last through training and have to last through academics and have to last to be the people teaching it, right? Yep. And we're still not completely there yet because there's not enough people that are lasting the whole way through and through the pipeline to be the people that are making the change from the highest level. Right, right. So you're seeing it sort of generation by generation and step by step. And now as an educator, is it something that you tune into and do and, and you see it in learners? And, and what do you do with it? Do you try to nurture it? Yeah, I mean, I, you definitely see like that the younger generation comes in a lot more like emotionally expressive and ready to fight. <laughs> um, I think that it still gets it's still hard for them. It's still definitely I mean, especially in certain specialties. I hate the word beaten out of them, but tried to beat out of them. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that they will seek out the people that are more open to them and they can find it. I mm -hmm. always tell faculty if they're the kind of person like me to try their best to be openly expressive about emotions in front of residents or in front of trainees or med students, because like it's the same way with a boss. Like you would have no idea that somebody is the person to go to unless they tell you. And you would just assume that that person doesn't like emotions and isn't the right person and is going to judge you. But if they're like, I go to therapy and I'm fine and blah, 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 then right. you know that they're the right person to go to because they're openly talking about stuff and they seem accessible. So you have to sort of like seem somewhat approachable in some capacity about those topics so that people feel safe. And so I think that's one of those things that I do so that people feel like they can come to me. It's one of those things I do on social and that happens to be where some people come to people on social media for that. A lot of people do that on social. And I think it broadens your mentorship ability to be some of those people that maybe you are in a tiny school and you don't have the ability to talk to someone at your school, but you can talk to somebody else on like med Twitter. 
So it's really flipping the script. I mean, completely, basically. I mean, didn't you, when we talked, use this term radical honesty? Yeah. I mean, I think I just like, I, in my opinion, it's like, you know, you could just put on this like facade and pretend that med school is amazing and it wasn't hard and college was amazing, but it's not. I mean, there's so many hard things all along the way and it's not helpful for anyone to pretend that this was like the most amazing path and all along the way it was flowers and puppies and kittens. Like, you know, if you don't pause and go, do I really want to be doing this along the way? It is also a big mistake because there are easier spots to get out of it than all when you're done with residency or when you're in attending. You already wasted 10 years if that's when you realize it wasn't the right thing, you know? So I think we have to be able to have these conversations early because that's actually when you can make an earlier decision if it's right for you. And if you never stop and talk about these things, you actually never question who you're doing it for and if it's actually right for you. So, I mean, I, I this image of, you know, you were able to kind of reach escape velocity with your personality intact, right? And so in what you're doing in your career through all the things in the media, social media is creating a space to lift other people up, you know, as you climb, so to speak, right? And so when you say, this is my style, how would you describe that? I mean, you've said uh, authentic, uh, we've talked about radical honesty. Um, I think, you know, you said self-disclosing. I just want to kind of put words to it. I think when we talked, you said maybe it was in one of the evaluations, someone said you were too informal, and which would be the, you know, something someone would say if they didn't like that. What else would you say about your style as a, mm-hmm. as a clinician and an educator and a social media person? The informal thing actually came up this year. <laughs> Did it? Yeah. I was going to give a talk and someone was, you know, trying to decide if they wanted me to give a talk. And they said I couldn't give a talk because I was too informal. And I laughed and said, you know, I don't really need to give a talk for you. I'm way past the point that I care. I thought you meant they thought you were informal because you laughed. No, I was way before that. What did they mean? They, You know, my style, like I taught when I give talks, you know, I put cartoons in them and I kind of like, you know, I mean. I'm trying to make people like what they're learning. I'm not trying to make people hate it. So they didn't like it wasn't stuffy enough. You know, I would say also like pretty unfiltered. I've always felt like that. Like if there's something that I want to say, I'm going to say it. I'm not like a person who like tries to hurt people with what I'm saying or, or like uses curse words all the time or something. But I've always been a person where like, even when I was a kid, if somebody wanted to say something to the teacher that they wanted to say they hated the homework assignment, but didn't know how to say it, I would be the person that they'd nominate to say it because I didn't really, it didn't really bother me to do it. If everybody thought it was a bad homework assignment, I I might as well just tell her it's a bad homework assignment. So I feel like I'm pretty unfiltered in that sense. I think I'm a pretty like, empathetic, caring person. I think that comes across on things like social media, I would hope. I think that I I try really to be openly like validating of people's like lived experiences as much as possible. And I try to, you know, I'm a white female. I try really hard to lift up people of different experiences who don't have the same platform that I do or same exposure that I do. I have a, you know, unique privilege that some people don't. And I try my best to, at every point that I'm offered an opportunity, try to offer the opportunity to other people where I can or write about people whose stories might not be told or try to find the stories that maybe people aren't telling. Or I think that's really important to me and has been, especially over this year. 
so the, okay so this is so this is how you would describe your style and personality actually what's interesting to me there is it's not just the unfiltered stuff because that without empathy is a different thing right that without a desire to help actually a friend of mine once said there's like three kinds of people there's there's makers there's takers and there's helpers or something like that and and you're in that camp and and you've survived you know because you reached escape velocity intact when was the realization that your story like you know that's still okay you came out with your your style and your personality intact but that's still different than using your story so tell us about that yeah so i would say the first time that i realized that words and like my own words really mattered was like i had an experience my third year of med school mm. where like i it was like even my first rotation i think where i was called into basically do cardiac massage on a person who was already dead and I had no idea until like basically I had like already done it and done the epinephrine into the heart. And I'm not a person who even, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist. I didn't go into emergency. Like my brain doesn't work that way. I was like very anxious and it was not good for me. And the other med student was like jealous. I got called in, but there was like blood everywhere. It was a trauma. Like they had cracked over in his chest. Like it was not good. Right. I was like, what is going on? And why are they calling me? And there's no way I'm the right person to do this, whatever. And then they had me do that. And then it was very clear, like as like a point at the end that it was long over before they did that. And I just sort of was like, what? And, I, you know, nobody processed that with me. Nobody thought it was a bad idea. No, it just was like a learning opportunity. Right. And then they had us like stitch him up after. Right. And we like went on with it. And I went to, you know, the dean and said something and it was sort of just like, oh, that's what that attending does. It's really not good, but I'm sorry kind of thing. And I wrote it out because I'd been journaling when I felt angry and upset because that's how I processed and sent it to my mentor, who's basically the reason I survived med school. And she was like, you know, this is wonderful. I mean, first of all, sorry that happened. This is really wonderful. There's a lot of anger. You should probably take a lot of the anger out, but there's a lot to be learned from this. And that people shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. And like, if you want to and feel like you would want to share this with other people, I do think that you should think about writing this for a bigger audience. And I shared it with somebody who does like more of the humanities kind of writing at Yale. And we, you know, edited it and wrote it for Annals of Internal Medicine. And, you know, when I put that out, the reaction I got was way more positive than most things in med school for me. So uh -huh. just that was like uh, kind of amazing. And then uh -huh. also I realized that like, you know, the reaction was much more than, you know, what I got from the Dean, which was sort of just like, there, there child, like we're stuck yeah. with this guy. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, that's bad. Like this needs to change. This is problematic. This shouldn't happen. It got sent around the med school. People talked about it. Like it, it was like, oh, my words can be like used on this big scale to cause conversations. And it could be used like one case can like have this conversation across the country about medical education. And it can have this conversation about hierarchy and bullying and the role of the med student and, you know, how there's humanity in us that people forget and all this stuff. And I was like, it was just so different than the one on one conversation. And then after that, I was like, I, I need to do this more. I mean, and actually, it's really interesting because I, a little self-disclosure, I know you told me that before, but as I was asking you the question, I'd forgotten the details of the story. Probably I 
defended against it a little bit because when I heard it again, it just took my breath away. Just to hear, having been to med school, I can definitely, you know, have some sense of how, what kind of a moment that was. So out of the crucible of that incredibly powerful, this condensation of all of this stuff in that moment, and you know, you're somebody that's sensitive to it and aware of your sensitivity to it. And then you, you call this mentor important part of the story, important part, like we need each other. And, you know, you know, what would the experience have been if you didn't have her? And then, you know, then your words get out there and they have a totally different effect than when you just asked within the structure, right? So here's the question. Had you literally not had that thought before? Like, wow, my words and my story can have an impact. Was it really that moment? You know, I had been doing like little things like I did have an MD kind of blogging thing before, but it was like I would write about anatomy class and I would write these like little things like I'd never written anything that was like so personal personal, and like so deep and heavy. And I had never really thought that anybody needed to know what was going on with me like that. Like I kind of was like, here are my observations of med school. Like here are the things we learn in med school that are interesting. It was more like surface. It was good. I, I was an anthro major, so I knew how to write, right? right? But it was never like, here is my heart and soul on a paper and learn from my heart and soul, right? And I, I never really would have felt comfortable doing that, maybe, but I think right. I felt like I needed to. Right. I get it. I mean, the, to me, the images of the difference between writing something to write it and almost like an artist, like, you know, you just get overwhelmed by this kind of seizure within yourself of, creativity in a sense, right? Like really putting yourself out there. So how, because I think you, you went so far as to say now, because you've been doing it for a while, that you are having the experience, not only that you get the kind of feedback that might help you, but you are noticing that you're developing a voice or your story or all, but however you're interacting in the conversation is actually changing things. And you talked about structure. So what is that like? I think it's really interesting. Like now I write in so many different ways. Like I can think about it from so many different layers. Like I can think about, do I want to tell that as my story? Do I want to tell that from a journalistic perspective where I'm interviewing people? Do I want to tell that as like more of an academic piece? Do I want to tell that from, you know, self for me, which would be more like talking about depression, but like more of the science part and maybe interviewing somebody, right? So I have all these kind of different avenues of ways to talk about things now because I have been writing for so long, which is nice. And I think that, you know, when I have that, it lets me think about the stories that are missing in psychiatry, the stories that are missing in physician wellness and mental health, and the stories that are missing in advocacy and try to fill in the gaps, which is great. And I can observe on social media and observe the things that people are really talking about and the things that are really missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, for my voice, I've been kind of like, we'll kind of see like if I say something, if it really resonates with people or they start talking back more, if I throw something out there, if it really sparks conversation a lot, or if I say something about like my day, if it really like makes people kind of say something back or somebody says it was really validating that I said something, I realized that was a lot more powerful than I thought. You know, I said I slept a whole weekend once and somebody said it was like really important to them that I said that. And I was like, oh, I was just really tired. Like, Mm -hmm. I didn't really think much about it. And, you know, people just like, I guess people aren't that open about what their day to day life is like. And so I think, you know, it's interesting for me because social media is like my friends and peers who are 
healthcare workers, but my patients are also healthcare workers. So it's like this kind of interesting overlap where when I'm speaking to my friends and peers, I'm also speaking to the kind of people I would be seeing as patients. So they see it kind of both ways sometimes. And it can be an interesting kind of overlap of like, oh, that's validating as a friend and peer. And that's validating as a person that I would see as a physician. So it sounds like you're really getting a sense of really having an impact at scale. And let's take a turn here, you know, because this isn't only about being inspired by a story about somebody that, you know, has a has held to their style and it's authentic and is using it to have impact at scale. There's also some really real basic stuff here. For instance, we talked a little bit about when it comes to you talking with patients. I mean, I think you you said that your style carries even into the healthcare arena. And this is another place where people have concerns about, oh, should I say this and should I say that? So how do you navigate, for instance, even, you know, talking with patients about your own treatment and how does that, how do you think about that? Yeah. And I think that a lot of it is because like, if you do that, like they, you know, there's worry, like, are you on the front lines? Like, are you in danger? Are your, is your family in danger? What's it been like for you? They have like real questions and it's not helpful to do that. And I think that they really do want to know. And so I, I answer as much as it makes sense. I think I evaluate if it's unsafe or it doesn't mm -hmm. make sense for certain patients. Like obviously certain patients are asking for the wrong reasons and I have the awareness of that. But, you know, I think mm -hmm. for some people, like I talk about therapy, if it makes sense. I think, you know, I have some healthcare worker patients that are hesitant to go to therapy very clearly because of stigma and biases um, that come from being a healthcare worker. And I think mm -hmm. it can be helpful the same way it is on social media for me to be like, listen, like, I get it. Like, I, you know, here's my experience, you know, and I think that I don't put it on them like preachy. I just am like, I get it. You know, this is what I know. This is how it's been for me. It's not always perfect, but this is what I've learned from it. And, you know, I'm putting it there. I've also had patients like explicitly say, what do you do to cope? Um, you know, that came up a few times over the pandemic because I think it's been quite evident to a few of my patients that it has to be hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and I had a patient say something along the lines of like, I envision your job like a hundred of me in a room just talking to you. And I started laughing and he, he then said like, I just mean like, I just can't imagine like what that would be like. And like, can I ask? And you don't have to answer like, what do you do to cope? And I said, I don't mind. Like mm -hmm. I'll answer. And I said, you know, I go to therapy and most therapists go to therapy. And he's mm -hmm. like, well, it really makes me happy that you answered that. And it's really good for me to know. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, it's, it's almost safe in a lot of ways for them to know that like they can tell you stuff and you are okay. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's what I said. I said, like, I, I see it like I can hold whatever you give me because I have an outlet for that. And like, I don't see it like I'm sick and I can't tolerate this. I see it right. like I have a way to tolerate this. Like I'm healthy. I'm taking care of myself, right? Like that's yeah. the point of it, you know? So I, I try to be as open as I can with stuff like that because I think it makes sense. Well, and there's two things in that that, that strike me. One is another pearl that I don't think we've gotten to on the podcast, which is just how helpful our patients can be, right? In keeping us honest and that you have a way of interacting with them that allows them to feel safe and keeping you honest, I think is really important. The second thing, because you mentioned perfect in there somewhere, and I think you, you know, and it kind of goes to get going for full circle about the, the, this uh, myth that the doctor is perfect. And in what ways has the system relied on that and why? And 
how appropriate is it? And it sounds as though you're able to navigate being imperfect with your patients. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful, you know, like to admit when you don't know the answers or to admit that you're not sure or to admit that like things are hard or it's been challenging or you're worried about them and you wish you had all the answers and you don't because mental health system's broken. And I think that it makes it a lot better to be blatantly honest. And I think that that's how I practice. And I think I'll sometimes be like, I'm doing something that might get me fired by you because I am not like going to give you that medicine or I'm not going to do the thing that you exactly want me to do. And if you fire me, like I will be sad because I like you, but I will miss you and you can also have the right to fire me. But, you know, I think it's just it's just how I practice. And I think that it maybe some people don't like it, but I think a good amount of them do. And I think it has been also how my therapist practices, to be honest, like my mm -hmm. therapist is very she calls it relational and she um, is very open and very honest about things and like not outside the room. It's not like we would go hang out, but she talks about things inside the room as much as it comes up. And I think that's really helpful and teaches me that that's okay. Excellent. You know, so really got a wonderful sense of the arc of your career and building yourself as a force for good and change. And, you know, you're plugged in in so many ways and so kind of open and connected to people and the system. So what is your prediction or do you have hope, you know, given how plugged in you are, given how you have this full access in a sense, you're not numbing yourself to the experience, right? and you're touching the system in so many ways. So what is your sense of hope or not having hope relative to, let's just say, medicine, wellness of healthcare folks coming out of the pandemic? Where are you relative to hope? Yeah, I mean, I think that we are in a phase where obviously more of us are gonna realize that this affected us than maybe we realized to begin with because we're coming out of the acute phase of need. And so we're going to start to realize the mental health side of things. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think realizing need means that we're coming to terms that we actually value mental health and we can name it and maybe we'll get help before it's a serious problem. And that might be actually good. Um, I think that the benefit of some of the things about the pandemic is we have more openly talked about mental health and healthcare workers than probably ever before. Um, you know, there's a lot of open discussion about it, a lot of vulnerability around it, a lot of, you know, maybe that wouldn't have been there before, but we had no choice because we are so exhausted and people cried on TV or people gave real quotes or people, you know, wanted people to understand what it was really like. So they told the truth and, you know, went in telling the truth that was like real emotional expressions of vulnerability. And vulnerability is emotions and truth and, you know, the mental health stuff that we tried to hide for so long. And I think that gives me hope in some capacity because that's cultural change and you can't make that up and you can't force that. And that is something that if we take the momentum from that and we say, look, like this was something we needed to do. This isn't something that was really you know, it wasn't under the surface before. It's sure not under the surface now. We need to start acting like this is the way our culture needs to be. We need to move forward with this as central to what our system is. We need to value this. And then we need to start building systems around it as opposed to pushing it back down. 
And so I have hope that we can do that. I don't know that everywhere will do that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that, you Mm -hmm. know, every specialty, every system, every place will do that. I think that this is like the time to like grab it and Mm -hmm. run with it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, because I can see that there's probably been no other time that has this much momentum and this much like, you know, eyes and, you know, whatever. I just really hope that hospital systems and administrators and people with financial backing and people who really get it know that this is not a band-aid and this is something you need to like really care about in the long term. As you're talking, I'm thinking in my own experience, I'm wondering, are we sealing over again a little bit, you know, in in healthcare and in actually even this general, it was such a rough year. You mentioned watching a person on TV showing emotion and maybe, and I'm seeing less of that as I thought when, when you're saying that. And, you know, for people listening to the podcast, what can, what can we do? I mean, because there's a lot of people out there. I mean, what, what can each of us do to stay vulnerable and keep the system vulnerable? Yeah. Be honest with each other. I mean, I think that one of the things that we do is that we hope that things are the same and they're not. For some of us, sure, like there will be some people that have been waiting and waiting and waiting to go back to work and see each other and it will be fine. And even if work is different, it will be exactly what you've been missing and needing the whole time and you will feel great. But there will be some of us where it will be worse and some of us where it just won't feel good no matter what. Right. And I think that we need to be there for those people and there for everybody and have good teams where we're aware that this is not something you can just like push down because no matter what, it's like going to come back up to the surface for somebody like a beach ball kind of thing. Right. And so I think we have to say like, okay, maybe I feel okay. Maybe I feel okay today. Maybe I won't tomorrow. Maybe I feel okay, but my friend doesn't. Maybe I feel okay. My family member doesn't. So we need to be able to say like, this was hard. And even if I feel okay today, it was hard yesterday. And so we have to have real conversations and we have to start realizing that these conversations need to be part of our day-to-day life in work, in home, in our families, in whatever. And we need to say that like, even if we feel quote unquote, well, there's always the next day and mental health needs to be in the conversation just as much as physical health, because I can get a cold tomorrow. I could get a pandemic tomorrow. Right. So like, so can you get a depression episode tomorrow? So it needs to be just in every conversation and it's not, and that's the problem. So you need to advocate for mental health to be in every room because it's not. Super helpful. And actually I, underlined in my head when you were talking, because I, I, you know, we've been talking about, you know, work, how do we be thoughtful about coming, quote, out, unquote, of the pandemic? And and we have a feeling it would be probably not a good idea to just assume it's going to happen naturally. But the way you said it was people are going to think it's the same, but it's not. I mean, that that to me is is an underline. So let me ask you, is there anything else that comes to mind that we didn't ask you that you want to bring in today? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would say is that, you know, medicine teaches you very much that emotions are a weakness mm-hmm. and, and they're not. And, you know, even people like me who train in emotions and are supposed to value emotions and very much do sometimes think they're a weakness and try to stop them before they happen, even with patients and even on myself and don't let them come when they're supposed to. And we need to give ourselves space to feel. And that's honestly one of the most important things that we could be doing for ourselves as we come out of the pandemic, as we come back to work, as we come back to each other, 
is like just giving ourselves space to have feelings and not judging ourselves for them. And we do that too much and medicine made it worse. And we just really need to say like, feelings are feelings no matter what they are and it's okay to have them. There are so many inspiring pearls in talking with you and the two you know that you bring to mind right now. One is turning this thing on its head that what people think of as a weakness or are told is a weakness is actually a strength. Because I think in your story, people can see for you to get to reach that escape velocity with your personality intact took strength, right? And then the, the second is just how powerful your story can be. I mean, that is just amazing. So I know you're very busy. So thank you so much for your time. And, and I know that this podcast today will have a huge impact. So I, I think it was worth it. But we will be uh, wishing you well. And for people, I mean, obviously, you can follow Jesse in, on social media, but just uh, your website is Dr. Jesse Gold. So D-R-J-E-S-S-I-G-O-L-D.com. Is that right? Yes. And That's same it. for social. It's just Dr. Jesse Gold. There you go. Excellent. Thank you, Jesse. Stay in touch. Yeah, thank you for having me. Lift the mask. Voices of heroes in a silent pandemic. With Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, the Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer Sarah Marshall. Theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editors, Sinead Doyle and Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, Please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47 512